This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 303, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Daniel Glass Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Daniel Glass. And uh, today uh, we're going to dig into something that I've been wanting to do for a long time and one of the ways that I'd like to, uh, one of the things I'd like to do in this podcast, which is to do some deconstructions uh, of different songs, different artists, different eras, different albums. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, as a historian and a researcher and someone who's just a freak and a geek, for all kinds of music and, and music history in general. Um, this is what I've been doing now for 15 years as a writer and an author. And I thought I'd, you know, be a great opportunity to use this podcast as a way to um, dig in deep to some to some uh, different aspects of music that perhaps uh, maybe you didn't think about or, you know, you may not connect the dots uh, as, as, as we're going to do here. So we're going to start it all off today uh, by taking a look at uh, the classic rock and roll song, Rock Around the Clock. Now, a lot of people have sort of, there's a lot of baggage, I guess you could say, associated with this song in our world today, 2015. The song came out in 1954, and most of us uh, who grew up, at least when I did, we associate the song with the TV show Happy Days. And maybe, um, you know, if you're, if you're younger than me, uh, you, you're not even familiar with the song, or you know you've you've heard it around. It's a, it's a song that has become sort of part of our general consciousness. But however you have accessed this song, uh, in general, you probably think of it as a cute, quaint, little nostalgic piece of fluff that is part of the past that has nothing to do with you today, or doesn't really. I don't know, uh, represents something you would seriously listen to in, in your listening. And what I'd like to do today in this podcast is hopefully uh, shake up your um, your idea about what this song is, what it represents. And uh, in doing so, I'd like to look deeply, more deeply at the song and, and indeed take, uh, sort of put it into the perspective of its time and show you just how radical and interesting and uh, different and um, what a milestone that it really was and, and how it represented a, a historic turning point that leads us to the music that, that we listen to today. And maybe we'll uh, just play a little bit of it right now so you can kind of wrap your brain around it if you haven't heard it for a while. So let's, let's take a listen to it right now and then we'll, we'll check back in and uh, talk about this song. Here we go. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. But you should ride, ride, so join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. So, interestingly, when you listen to this song, even though a lot of people say that this song was, you know, the, the first rock and roll song, which is highly debatable, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into it. Um, but certainly, you can credit Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, with, with being the song that introduced the concept of rock and roll as a musical style to the vast majority 
uh, of of Americans and to the world. It was the first song that um, was hugely popular and influential that actually defined itself as being a rock and roll song. Um, it, es- it essentially broke rock and roll to the masses, and it really was the first huge hit of what became the rock era in the mid-1950s, and it ster- certainly still is an all-time classic. But when you actually listen to this song, even though you know we associate it with the term rock and roll, it really doesn't sound anything like what most of us would consider to be rock and roll, which is, you know, even if we go back to the Beatles, uh, a couple of electric guitars, sort of distorted, um, loud singing, uh, electric solos, very heavy drums, um, and electric bass, uh, things like that. Those sort of common characteristics that we would associate with with rock and roll today. And this song sounds very different. So, um, you know, what what we can take from this is that rock in the 1950s obviously was still trying to figure itself out, trying to define itself, what made it different from the music that came before it. And what's so great about this song, and I'll just sort of lay this out at the beginning and then we'll we'll dig in deeper, is really it is more like a Frankenstein monster of, of a tune where you have a lot of different styles, styles that had been influencing Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, styles that had been recently popular at that time, uh, and they're just sort of mashed together. So you hear elements of country music, you hear elements of blues music, you hear elements of R&B, which was sort of pumped up, electrified version of the blues. Uh, You hear elements of jazz and swing music, 1930s big band swing, and even kind of bebop jazz. And they're all sort of thrown together. And if you sort of looked at this combination of elements on paper, you would say there's no way that this they could all be just pushed together like this into one song and work. And yet somehow it it managed to happen. And the results are this glorious piece of, of music that indeed was a huge hit at in, in its day and, and has been very influential on a lot of other music since then. So let's let's start by looking a little bit more at, at the life of Bill Haley. Uh, because, of course, this song is by Bill Haley and his Comets. Uh, and let's see how we get to to this Frankenstein monster. Uh, so I'm actually going to start by uh, playing you guys a little bit of a Hank Williams song. Uh, and this song is a, is a pretty well-known Hank Williams hit from 1951 called Cold, Cold Heart. A memory from your lonesome past Keeps us so far apart Why can't I free your doubtful mind And melt your cold, cold heart now, I should mention uh, before I go any further that all the examples I'm going to play for you guys today are very short snippets, and that's due to copyright issues. Uh, you're not really allowed to play um, copywritten material in its entirety on a podcast. So, uh, But that said, if you're interested in hearing it in its entirety, I will, I will give you some links to be able to do that. Um, so, Cold Cold Heart, Hank Williams. Now, Hank Williams... Um, for most of us, we've heard the name. He he was sort of the first really huge star of what we might call the more modern country era, although by modern country today, it's kind of changed his definition, I suppose, if you're thinking about 
uh, modern country artists that are popular right now. But a new era of country began with Hank Williams. He was really its first superstar, and unfortunately, he was a rather tragic figure. He died um, in 1953, I believe, by the time, even just before he was 30 years old. But he was one of those people as sort of like a Jimi Hendrix or a Kurt Cobain, where in death, uh, his legacy was sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, frozen in time. He didn't have time to not be cool uh, or to, to lose his his power. So, you know, sort of like a James Dean or something like that. So Hank Williams is, is always revered as sort of being called the granddaddy of, of modern country music. And when you listen to the song, what you hear is what was very typical of country music of that time, which essentially is acoustic guitar, upright bass, um, pedal steel guitar, and of course Hank's uh, plaintive, uh, mournful kind of way of singing, which was which was very popular uh, with with country music at that time, and still in many country circles today. Um, so. Bill Haley, who uh, I believe was born in Michigan, as a young man moved to Chester, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Philadelphia along the Delaware River. And um, that area was an area that uh, was, country music was very big. Uh, and Haley's father, I believe, was a bluegrass musician. So, And his mother also was a musician, although I think she was more of a classical player. So he grew up with a lot of music in the house, and he was very influenced by music and fell in love with it. And by the time I think he was 14 years old, he left school determined on making a career in music. And this was in the late 1940s. As he evolved and developed, he uh, became a disc jockey in that area, I think for about six years. And he, uh, the band that he created and what he was into was country music. So his first real band was called The Saddlemen. And uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, and they, were the, the, they started to record around this time. They started to get some popularity. He was very uh, excited about, about music and, and was serious about pursuing it. So they, they started to get with some local labels and started recording. So this is an early example of Bill Haley and The Saddlemen recording. And I want you to notice the song is called Icy Heart. It sounds an awful lot like the Hank Williams song, Cold Cold Heart, from the previous year. You can hear a lot of the same similarities, and the band The Saddlemen had um, a lot of the same instrumentation that uh, that a typical country band would. Um, and, uh, you know, they had a, an upright bass. The electric bass uh, really didn't show up at all until about 1950. So, you know, in the early 50s, 51, 52, most bands playing country and rhythm and blues and pop and, uh, the, you know, styles that would eventually morph into rock and roll, they were all still using upright bass. Um, and, of course, Bill himself played acoustic guitar like Hank Williams. Uh, you've got uh, your uh, pedal steel, and I'm not sure... Even it might just be a steel guitar mounted on a stand. I don't know if there were pedals. I'm pretty sure it was not a lap steel. It didn't sit on somebody's lap. But that's that twangy kind of thing we associate with with country music. Uh, and what you'll what you'll notice a, a distinct lack of in this recording is drums. 
Uh, now, again, that's something that we don't think of as, as being very rock and roll. What? Rock and roll. You got to have drums, otherwise it's not rock and roll. But uh, again, Haley at this time was a country artist who was pursuing uh, country music. Now, at the same time, a, another style was evolving called rhythm and blues. There was a lot of things happening in the late 40s and early 50s that were all happening simultaneously, influencing one another. And so let's talk for a second about rhythm and blues. Now, rhythm and blues uh, evolved out of... um, African-American big bands of the 1930s and 40s. And and if you have any of my books, especially my book, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming that I did with Zorro, I get really deep into the story. So I'm not going to get too into it now. Maybe in other podcasts down the road, I'll, I'll dip into other aspects of it. But essentially... The thing about Rhythm and Blues was it took the idea of a big band and smashed it down into a small group. And uh, it's still, many Rhythm and Blues bands had horn sections, or if they didn't, what started to evolve in the late 40s was this idea of a honking saxophone. So that kind of wailing, squealing, you know, kind of a a honking sax. And that became more and more popular as the 40s went on. Uh, Rhythm and Blues bands had electric guitars, they had upright basses, and they had drums because they evolved out of styles of music that already used the drum set, which was big band swing music. Um, As we get into the late 40s, for the first time, backbeats start to happen. This idea of this heavy two and four, on on a snare drum. Uh, That was a relatively new phenomenon. As, you know, going back earlier, and again, I talk about this all the time at my drum clinic, so I'm going to go into a drum thing for just a sec, but for you non-drummers, don't worry, this won't get too deep uh, or too complex. But the idea of a drummer playing a heavy hit on their snare drum on two and four all the way through the song really was not um, something that had been done prior to the late 1940s. And this was because uh, because of the concerns of volume. You know, um, there were not be, instruments were not individually mic'd prior to this time nor were uh, guitars amplified. Uh, Singers uh, maybe, you know, had the microphone, obviously, but the rest of the instruments just had to learn how to play in a balance. And if a drummer was whacking on two and four the whole way, especially on recordings, uh, it just, it it was difficult technically, and it was frowned upon as being too aggressive. So sometimes on earlier recordings, you'll hear a heavy two and four maybe in a clap, or you'll you'll hear a shuffle that emphasizes two and four. You know, but it didn't know that kind of a thing. Um, But right around 1949 and 48, we start to hear for the first time in rhythm and blues music this idea of a a serious backbeat. And there's a tune called Rock the Joint or Rock This Joint from 1949 by a band called Jimmy Preston and his Prestonians. And I just want to play this to you because, uh, play you a few seconds of this because you can hear that rhythm and blues was was a very aggressive style of music, much more so than country, um, and uh, you can you can kind of uh, hear all these elements that I'm talking about. So this is Jimmy Preston and his Prestonians doing "Rock the Joint" from 1949. Now, uh, Bill Haley was 
not living in a bubble. He was in Philadelphia, based in Philadelphia and the area. And the bands, um, you know, his band, The Saddleman, would play in a lot of different spots. They were a working band. And one of the places they played was a place called Wildwood, New Jersey, which is along the Jersey Shore, just south of Atlantic City in, in the state of New Jersey, obviously. Um, and this was a huge summer resort spot. I remember my mom actually telling me, my mom grew up in Philly, and she, she used to go there in the, in the summertime. And of course, it was a family thing. You'd go on the beach, stay in cabins. Um, but it was, a, it was a resort area, and there was a, a hopping scene for music. And Philadelphia around this time, people don't realize, uh, as were many American cities, a hotbed for rhythm and blues. The African-American community... Um, you know, we can get into the discussion of race here because it's a really big part of this whole era. But African Americans, after World War II, their status had risen uh, in the country, and, and, and you know, m- many African Americans uh, during World War II took the opportunity to get out of the South. It was what was called the Black Migration, and they moved to northern cities out west. Uh, California, uh, up to, you know, the Midwest, Cleveland, Detroit, to work in the auto industry, to work in the defense industries. Um, There were a lot of factory jobs that were needed during World War II, and uh, a lot of men had gone overseas who would normally take these jobs. They were in the armed forces. Several million men went into the armed forces. So uh, African-Americans were finally had the opportunity to get out of the the poverty they had in the South. Most were poor sharecroppers. and uh, or you know other very uh, brutal kind of, of of labor that did not you didn't make a lot of money doing it. And of course, you had the segregation and racism and Jim Crow in the South. So they went to these cities and were able to get real good paying jobs. Were treated with somewhat more of respect, and with some of that extra money, were able to create essentially a, a music industry that made music that they liked to listen to. And that's why Rhythm and Blues was able to thrive, because African Americans could now, for the first time, in mass, as a demographic, go buy records. So records like uh, Rock the Joint, Jimmy Preston and his Prestonians, and a lot of other artists. And again, we'll probably talk about Rhythm and Blues at other podcasts more specifically, but they're becoming popular. And people like Bill Haley, you know, are listening to that. And World War II was such a huge, important time. Uh, it affected so many different people in America and changed the way that everything, you know, was done and, and those those four or five years that we were in that war. And after the war then, um, all these guys came back. And of course, you know, the first thing they did was get married and start having babies. I mean, they'd been at war. The country had been this horrible place coming out of depression and World War II. So um, end of the war, uh, they all <laughs> literally... People are getting married and having babies like it's going out of style. And 1946 begins this new generation called the baby boom generation, which we, which we uh, typically say lasted from 1946 to 1964. And it was this huge period of, of population growth in the United States uh, because times were better. People had more money. You know, the, the, the typical 1950s kind of American ideal of the nuclear family evolves. And it wasn't just for white America. It was for black America, too. And... Anyway, so um, these kids, the first generation of the baby boom, the earliest baby boomers, now by the time we get to the mid-50s are 10, 12, start to being teenagers, you know, if they were, if they, if they were born in the early years of, of World War II in the early 40s. And they, you know, are starting to listen to this music and define who they are as a generation. And, of course, at this time, just like today, kids like often 
the music that we consider to be pop music is music that they can move to. And, you know, pop music has always been considered dance music. And they start listening to this rhythm and blues. Now, as I said, rhythm and blues originally had been designed to be made for black audiences by black artists. And it wasn't kid music, it was adult music. But things really start to change. And in the early 50s, kids start listening to this music and start buying it because now they're hitting teenage years. And for the first time, teenagers actually could be teenagers. In fact, as I talk about in clinics endlessly, the word teenager really wasn't used in a widespread scale until Madison Avenue guys realized that there was a new generation of of young people who didn't have to go to work, you know, immediately or maybe not even finishing school, um, you know, or didn't weren't working in the fields to support their immigrant families or their poor farming families. For the first time, young people maybe had an allowance or were working an afternoon job after school and had some extra spending money. And suddenly teenagers become a real demographic. And so Madison Avenue says, hey, we could start selling stuff to these kids now. And so let's give them a name. And that's really when the name teenager became a term that that came into widespread use. So teenagers, of course, want to do something different than their parents. They, you know, like every generation, they don't want to listen to the same music their parents listen to. And this black music, rhythm and blues, first of all, is great dance music, has a great beat because it's got drums in it and it's all about groove. And they start buying these records and all of a sudden a new market for teens evolves. And... Um, and, you know, they talk about Alan Freed, probably most of you out there have heard that name. Uh, in the early 50s, he was a disc jockey uh, that um, had a show called The Moondog Show. He was based out of Cleveland, and his show happened to be the one that uh, became famous. I believe it was nationally syndicated, and he would spin rhythm and blues records, black records. And, um, you know, you think about this song, Rock the Joint, has the word rock in it. And suddenly a lot of different tunes have the word rock in it. Uh, and, and people have the misnomer of thinking that, that the term rock and roll was invented in the 50s. That's not true. It actually goes back to the 1920s. Um, there's a song, I just played it actually at Birdland uh, on, a, on a singer's show, uh, a, a gig a couple Sundays ago from, from the 1920s called My Man Rocks Me With One Steady Roll. It was, from the, it was a, a female blues singer. Um, so the term rock and roll is actually... Uh, it, it, it actually, like jazz, is a euphemism for sex, basically. Um, you know, rockin' and rollin', you can imagine what that is all about. Uh, and, you know, it had been in use for a while. But suddenly in the 1950s, Alan Freed, and there were other DJs too, um, in other key radio stations around the country, they started um, realizing that kids being into this music was was a gold mine and they would start to do what were called record hops where they would go to a gymnasium and they would set up and they would broadcast live i lived in los angeles for 20 years and uh there was a couple of djs uh that i learned about the disc jockey that i was thinking of in los angeles is a guy named art lebeau who um like i said up until just even a couple of years ago, was still on the radio playing oldies. That was his thing. But back in the 50s, he was one of these influential disc jockeys who, what he would do is he would uh, broadcast from a, uh, like a drive-in restaurant, a car hop restaurant, you know, right out of American Graffiti. And the teenagers would just go down there and request the records that they wanted to. So, you know, this music, obviously, people like Bill Haley, 
uh, saw that young audiences were responding to these rhythm and blues songs. And so Bill Haley started adding tunes to his repertoire that were rhythm and blues in nature. Um, I'm going to play you another song real quick, and this one from a couple years later, 1951. Uh, this is a, another sort of, like Rock the Joint, is a very um, pivotal a song in the story of rock and roll. Uh, and this is uh, Rocket 88 by Jackie Branston and his Delta Cats. And Jackie Branston is the singer on the record, but the real leader of this band was a guy that everybody knows his name as well, Ike Turner. Now, this is long before Ike got together with Tina. And of course, you know, we often think of Ike as being this uh, monster of a figure based on the story of him and Tina. But Ike Turner was also truly one of the pioneers of rock and roll. And it's a shame that that part of his legacy has been overshadowed um, by, you know, the the, the whole uh, relationship with Tina and the way he ran, you know, his band and all that. But he, he, he ran this band, rock, um, Jackie Branston, and, and was really kind of involved in that, in that rock and roll sound. So here's a little bit of Jackie Branston and his Delta Cats with Ike Turner uh, doing Rocket 88. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's great, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. Now, Bill Haley, uh, as I said, would play at Wildwood, New Jersey, and he would see bands like um, Jimmy Preston, uh, more particularly bands that were based in that area, uh, Chris Powell and his Blue Flames, another great rhythm and blues uh, show band, uh, and a band called the Treneers, who I was fortunate enough to get to know and and to see them play a couple of times live, Uh, all seminal rhythm and blues bands. And again, if you check out my Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming book, I talk much more about all these bands. You can see photos, you can hear examples and see groove, uh, check out the the groove transcriptions of a lot of the different kinds of shuffles that these bands used. Um, But Bill Haley, you know, with the Saddlemen, still wearing Western gear, cowboy hats, all of that, start throwing some rhythm and blues stuff into their repertoire, and all of a sudden it becomes popular. And uh, I'm going to just play you um, Bill Haley's version of Rocket 88 real quick so you can hear his countrified R&B. So now we're starting to get this Frankenstein monster. He's got a country lineup, probably still mostly a country repertoire, but now there's he's starting to throw this R&B kind of a feel in there. So here's Bill Haley doing Rocket 88. Lobbies, you heard the noise they make Let me introduce you to my rocket lady Yes, it's great, just one way Everybody likes my rocket lady Cows will ride and stop moving all along You know, you could definitely hear kind of that, that uh, both elements going on, country and rhythm and blues. And now I want to play for you uh, Bill Haley's cover of Rock the Joint. Uh, so he covered a lot of these tunes, recorded a lot of these tunes. And part of the reason for this, we, we might think that's a little weird today, is, you know, the idea of one group covering another group's material while the first band has the song out on the charts. Um, but back again in the, in the 1940s and 50s, um, music was pretty segregated still. In other words, 
uh, rhythm and blues records uh, and white you know, white acts didn't get on the rhythm and blues charts very much. That was still meant for black audiences and black artists and vice versa. Uh, black acts didn't really get on the pop charts that much. And so, you know, what would happen is you would have sometimes two or three versions of one song on the charts at the same time, but being geared towards different demographics. And again, I'll touch a little bit on the sort of the fairness of this issue in a second. Um, but anyway, here's Bill Haley and his version of Rock the Joint. We're gonna tear down the mailbox, rip up the floor, smash out the windows and knock down the door. We're gonna rock, rock this joint, we're gonna rock, rock this joint, we're gonna rock, rock this joint, we're gonna rock this joint tonight. Well, six times six is 36, I ain't gonna hit for six more licks, we're gonna rock. Rock this joint, we're gonna rock. Rock this joint, we're gonna rock. Rock this joint, we're gonna rock this joint tonight. Now, on the fade out of that, we go into the guitar solo, and you might notice uh, that the guitar solo is almost exactly the same solo as the one that appears in Rock Around the Clock, and that's kind of interesting. Um, meaning that Haley already was putting together his ideas for what his band was going to be about and was obviously recycling from one song to another uh, as as his career progressed. Um, so let's just talk for a second again about this idea of black versus white because again this this you know this issue of our music and where it comes from and black influence and the race relations in our country is a very interesting uh, story. And it's one that, you know, we tend to downplay in looking back in history. We tend not to think about it on on those terms, but it's a very interesting, um, very interesting story. So, uh, you know, when it comes to historians, and I've read a lot of history books and a lot of conversations with historians and other, you know, collectors, record collectors and, and, and music you know, freaks, you know, who invented rock and roll? Where did rock and roll come from? And where did it start? So a lot of people say, well, rock around the clock was really the invention of rock and roll. And then a lot of other people say, no, that's 1954. And we're not even, you know, we're not there yet. We're still in earlier parts of Haley's career a year or two before that. But um, then a lot of people say, well, Jackie Branson and his Delta Cats, you know, Rocket 88 from 1951. That's really the first rock and roll song. And then a lot of people say, well, no, because, you know, there were already... The, these elements of rock and roll happening and, and elements of rock and roll definitely are this big fat backbeat and uh, uh, the kind of electrified guitar uh, driving uh, groove drum groove um, you know honk and saxophone and, and you could say well 1949 you know Jimmy Preston rocked this joint you could even go back earlier and say uh, 1948 which is often one of the songs that I point out because it's probably uh, 1948 the song that that I'm referring to is Good Rockin' Tonight again rock in the title um, and that was uh, uh, written by one R&B artist named Roy uh, Roy Brown but covered by a second R&B artist named Wynoni Harris who actually had a much bigger hit with it and that was another sea change uh, again it was more of a crossover song that influenced a lot of white artists and after that Backbeat started to become a standard part of a rhythm and blues tune. So, you know, who was it a black style? Did white people really steal it? Did Elvis, you know, Elvis Presley often is called the king of rock and roll. Bill Haley was actually called the king of rock and roll first. Um, 
you know, stealing versus appropriating, borrowing. Um, I don't have the answers here, but it's it's a very interesting period where, again, a lot of people were doing stuff and a lot of people were, um, you know, being influenced by one another. Um, and I certainly would say that Bill Haley, his role in all of this, I would say that he did not invent rock and roll, but the fact that he was a white artist recording songs like Rock the Joint, Black Rhythm and Blues tunes, as early as 1951-52, puts him right there in the meat of the evolution of rock and roll. And um, certainly you have to credit him with being super influential. And as I said at the beginning of the program, he really was the 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 first person and you know through rock around the clock to um to expose this kind of music to the masses meaning the white uh majority uh, of of the american population and turn it into a phenomenon from being kind of an underground thing sort of like if you think about you know in the 1970s underground hip-hop was something that your average person in America had never heard of people were were doing rap and and talking using terms like hip hop and making this music in you know in the Bronx in the seventies or punk rock, which was something that most people were mortified and terrified of and was highly controversial when it appeared in the in the late seventies with the sex pistols and you know so many other bands and now both of those styles today are vastly mainstream, so the same thing was happening in the early fifties and late forties with r and b and rock and roll. It was something that was controversial it was you know the fact that white uh folks uh, white kids white teens were listening to black music was a big deal for a lot of parents and community leaders that 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 was not something that good white children did you know so um it's it's a great it's a great story and i'm again just trying to paint the picture of what the world was like at this time when this song rock around the clock finally drops and we're getting to it now we're we're getting we're moving into it so um back to haley uh his version of of uh uh, Rock the Joint uh, was played by Alan Freed. And as I said, Alan Freed, of all the DJs that were around at this time, was the most popular. He, I believe, had a syndicated show over at least a large regional area, if not the entire country. Everybody listened to him, and he was becoming a trendsetter. And he started playing a white artist version of, of rhythm and blues music, again, because, um, you know, it, it was becoming popular with white kids. So here's some now white artists playing it. You know, I think Haley actually went and performed live on the show. Kids were very much responding to this. So the word rock is now on everyone's lips. And, you know, again, people credit Alan Freed as being the first disc jockey to popularize the term rock and roll on a, on a widespread scale. Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. But what happens is Haley realizes that this is where his future lies. So in 1952, he takes off the cowboy outfits. He puts on, uh, you know, sort of these snappy tuxedos, sometimes with the checkered look. And the band starts doing, they start really imitating now rhythm and blues bands that were very active, uh, were, you know, uh, uh, had dance moves going. I mean, you think about uh, black bands like, um, you know, James Brown or Earth, Wind & Fire or, you know, they had the horn section dancing and stuff. Well, this all is a black tradition that goes back uh, a, a long way. It goes back to the big bands and, and probably earlier. But it was moving in synchronized moves. I should also mention Louis Jordan, who was the, the most important artist for popularizing rhythm and blues music in the 1940s and making it an acceptable genre. 
But he had sort of, by the early 50s, Louis Jordan was already a bit passe, and these newer artists were picking up the mantle and taking his version of, of, of rhythm and blues, which didn't have backbeats, and making it much, much more aggressive. Um, so Bill Haley changes his names to the Comets in 1952. Now, what's, what's hilarious about this is that up to this point, I wouldn't say hilarious, but in- interesting, so interesting, is that, you know, uh, he still doesn't have drums. There's still not a, a, a drummer, on at least on the recordings. And it was around this time that he did add a drummer to the band, a touring drummer named uh, Dick Richards. Dick may have come along, I'd say, 53, 54. And I've been fortunate that Dick was one of the guys that I interviewed. And uh, our interview with him is included in the book I did with Steve Smith, The Roots of Rock Drumming. It's a fantastic interview talking about this whole time period and his experiences being a part of this uh, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. And I should even mention, since his name is now Bill Haley and the Comets, people not, may not realize this, but around uh, you know the, the mid-century, uh, there was uh, this comet that literally a, a celestial uh, body that flew by the, the Earth, uh, which was called Halley's Comet. And I, I, I don't know the whole lore. I know Halley's Comet, it comes around once every so many years or something. We, we're positioned where we can see it. I, I, I'm not an astronomer, so I may have all that information incorrect. But I know that Bill Haley was capitalizing on the fervor around Haley's Comet. Since he had the same last name, he called the band The Comets, which is kind of, it's a great name because it implies a, a, a fiery, star rock shooting through the air. So Bill Haley and the Comets, it's a great name, and it goes really well with this kind of chunk-a-chunk of sound that they were coming up with. I should also mention on all these records, we talked about the upright bass, but we haven't talked about what the upright bass was doing, which was playing what's called in a slap style. And he was, what that means is that the bass player is literally pulling the strings tugging the strings away from the neck and then letting them snap, slap back on, or also, another part of the technique is just smacking the strings. So it'd be like you create this chug, 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 and this uh, chugging bass was really a hallmark of country music and blues music, which you know that th- this technique had been used for a long time already, for many decades. And this is partly because country music and uh, you know early blues, which were both rural styles, they were both styles of. They were folk music styles, just people in the in the South mostly, um, and uh, you know, just were just plunking away on on guitars and and uh, washtub basses and uh, other sort of uh, uh, acoustic instruments, and you know, but they were playing dance music uh, a lot of times. Early country music, you know, you think of hoedowns and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, or or more uh, up-tempo blues, uh, the idea was to get people dancing. So, But there was no drums in either of these styles of music, and I think we talked about this a little bit. Um, country frowned on drums, and, and again, I want to do a whole podcast just about country music and drumming and country music because it's such a great, fascinating subject. But the way they would get people dancing, they had a bunch of different techniques and to create rhythm without a drum set. And one of these techniques was to do this slap bass because it was very rhythmic and you know you could use the bass almost as a percussion instrument as well as used to create tones and and the bottom end bass lines. So um you know as the Haley sound gets more into rhythm and blues, gets more into 
getting kids to dance, obviously, um, that slap bass becomes a bigger and more pronounced part of the Haley sound. And you can definitely hear it in some of the tracks we've played so far. Now I'm going to play one more track before we get to Rock Around the Clock, uh, and that is a tune called Crazy Man Crazy, which was... Um, in 1953 now, and Haley is really digging in to the rhythm and blues sound. And we're going to hear, for the first time, a drummer. Uh, and it's very interesting, the story of Haley and drummers. So let's listen to this, and then I'll talk more a little bit about Haley and his drummers. Crazy man, crazy. Crazy man, crazy. Crazy man, crazy. Okay, so, Crazy Man Crazy, and this now actually is a Haley original. And um, you can tell uh, that, you know, Rock the Joint and Crazy Man Crazy, Rocket 88, by the way, was uh, was talking about that, Jackie Branston and and Bill Haley covering it, uh, is a song about a car, uh, something new, something else that was now more and more being geared towards teenagers. Who would have ever thought of writing a song about your car? Like, that doesn't seem like a very adult thing to do. But people like Chuck Berry and and many other artists that were playing rhythm and blues and early rock and roll now, of course, you think of the song Blue Suede Shoes. Don't step on my shoes, man, my cool shoes, right? So, um, you know, teen-oriented themes, girls, cars, haircuts, shoes, clothes, dance styles um, become the rage. And again, it's all calculated to appeal to this new teen demographic. Uh, So Crazy Man Crazy is, you know, Haley's, he got the phrase from some of the kids we're using. Crazy man, crazy, that's cool, you know. So that, well, I'll write a song like that. Um, Also, you know, along with the, the plaid tuxedos uh, are, are coming these these organized dance moves and bands are getting crazier and crazier and and uh, the, one of the things the Comets started doing with that slapping bass was you know the bass player would lay on his back and kick kick the bass up you know and again these were kind of tricks that that rhythm and blues bands used um no different than rock bands today where you know say the the guitar player whirls the the sax of the uh guitar the guitar around his neck or plays it with his teeth or you know uh, lays down on the floor doing it uh this these kind of uh you know uh, showmanship moves go back way way back uh, and, um, you know, you can trace them back. In other words, kids, Jimi Hendrix, I'm sorry to break, break it to you, Jimi Hendrix was not the first guy to play the guitar with his teeth or behind his, his neck or behind his back. You, you could see T-Bone Walker, a great guitar player, again, rhythm and blues player from the 1940s, already doing all this stuff. And doing it in a splits, I might add. There's an amazing picture, T-Bone Walker in a full splits, playing the, uh, the guitar behind his, his neck. So, um, anyway, that, that is... Um, where we're at. And actually, Haley at one point referred to his style as cowboy jive. So Crazy Man Crazy now is a new beginning for Haley. It's the first time that they they really chart. Uh, they'd had some success, you know, with Alan Freed playing some of the earlier records. Uh, but in 1953, Crazy Man Crazy hit the pop charts. Um, and it was the first time that, uh, uh, the and the pop charts is a euphemism for white music. Um, it was very difficult for black bands to get onto the pop music charts. Again, they were relegated to what were called the race charts or the rhythm and blues charts. Um, and it was, it was a segregation in music as well. And this is where a lot of people get upset about this, is that someone like Bill Haley, simply because he was white, 
could introduce this style on the white charts. But artists, black artists that had been playing this music for many years could not have the opportunity to get onto the pop charts. So it's, it's part of the, the whole, you know, kind of racial dynamic that was going on back then. And it was a big part of the 1950s and, and a part of, of rock and roll. So um, finally, on Crazy Man Crazy, we, we hear drums. And the drummer, and I'm pretty sure already he was playing on this, this tune, uh, is a guy named Billy Gussack. Uh, and what's interesting about Billy Gussack is, again, we, you know, he was not a rock and roll drummer. And we have to remember that in the 1950s, there was really no such thing as rock and roll per se. Uh, a rock and roll drummer, I should say. The term rock, as we've talked about, was just being invented. And this this guy, Billy Gussack, was, you know, he was a swing drummer. He was a jazz drummer. He was a studio drummer. Bill Haley, uh, when he started finally using drums, wanted a good drummer. And so he brought in a studio guy to play along. But what's interesting is that the way that Billy Gussack played, he played more like Gene Krupa in a style from the 30s and the 40s, and not in a way that we think of as rock and roll drumming today, with a big, fat, heavy backbeat on two and four again, all the way through the tune. So we'll talk more about, about Gussack. And of course, this is weird for Dick Richards, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who was the actual drummer in the Comets, who was added around this time, because he wasn't allowed at the beginning to play on the sessions, because Haley was very superstitious, and he wanted uh, to use you know, this studio guy. And once they had success with Crazy Man Crazy, then he stuck with that formula for a while. So um, what happens is the success of Haley now, they uh, get signed to Decca Records, which was at the time one of the biggest major labels in the country. It was like a Sony or a Warner Brothers today. Uh, and, and that was a really big deal, again, for this kind of music to, um, to get signed to a major label. You know, it was sort of like the first rap band that got signed to a major label, the first punk band that got signed to a major label, you know, the first bands that kind of uh, or today, you know, uh, death metal or, or uh, uh, extreme metal, whatever, or whatever you want to call it. You know, there's sort of band, a band that begins to represent it on a commercial level. And uh, so, anyway, they get signed, and they go in, and they record a bunch of different tunes. Um, they had a hit first with a song called Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which a lot of people know today. Elvis ended up covering it a couple years later. Uh, and the original uh, artist that did that was a guy named Big Joe Turner. Now, this is another interesting thing. If you listen to Big Joe Turner's version of Shake, Rattle, and Roll, you know, and it has that real great chorus, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And again, you're thinking rock and roll imagery, strong beat. But uh, Haley uh, kind of sanitized the... Um, Haley kind of sanitized the lyrics a little bit. And this is often what happened, is that a white artist would take a um, a black R&B tune, which was made for adults and maybe had much more racy lyrics, uh, and would make it, you know, clean up the lyrics and make it something that white teenagers that, that you know, nobody would get too upset about with the sexual, particularly the overt sexual connotation. So, for example, there's a there's a, a lyric in the... the uh, Big Joe Turner version, which, which goes, uh, I can't believe my eyes, all that mess belongs to you. Basically talking about the, his girlfriend and, and her hot body. And uh, that line was completely <laughs> erased in the Bill Haley version. Um, 
And there's another line, uh, I believe to my soul you're the devil in nylon hose, meaning nylon pantyhose. So, you know, he's talking about his frustration. He's really hot for this girl, but she's the devil in nylon pantyhose. And uh, uh, Bill Haley says, uh, I believe to my soul you're the devil and now I know. So, you know, these kind of things were often what happened when a uh, white artist would cover an African-American rhythm and blues tune. So Shake, Rattle, and Roll charts, and now they go in and they record Rock Around the Clock. It's now April 12th, 1954. They record in New York City, so now they're going to New York City to record in these great studios. And they record in this amazing studio, which is called the Pythian Temple. Now, I live on the Upper West Side. And the Pythian Temple is, the the building, which is called the Pythian, is still there. It's literally a block or two from my house. And I've walked over to it before and taken pictures because the front of it is amazing. The Pythians were this uh, fraternal order, like the Elks or the Masons, and they were very popular. They had, you know, quote-unquote temples all over uh, New York City at one time and probably all over the country. But the Pythians, the the order had gone down by the by the mid-50s. They had to sell. Decca Records bought it and used their auditorium uh, as a recording studio. And it was a lot of early rock and roll was recorded there. It had an amazing uh, sound. The room had this kind of natural reverb. And that's where Rock Around the Clock was recorded, and that's why Rock Around the Clock has this incredible sound to it. And uh, so... They record Rock Around the Clock, it comes out, and it does okay, but not all that great. In fact, it wasn't even the A-side on that session. They did two songs. The first song, uh, 13 Women and and Me the Only Man Around or Not Another Man Around, uh, was the first, that was the A-tune, and Rock Around the Clock was the B-side. But people responded to Rock Around the Clock, again, by the way, rock in the title, um, and, uh, but it only made it to number 75, However, what happened is the following year now, a lot of stuff's happening with this rock and roll. And 1954 was the year that Elvis first recorded. Carl Perkins recorded Blue Suede Shoes in 1954. That becomes a huge hit. So suddenly Haley is not the only game in town. And, you know, different artists, white artists and black artists are recording a lot. And it's becoming big, this rock and roll thing. So what happens is 1955, uh, they managed to place Rock Around the Clock in the opening credits of a movie, which the movie was called The Blackboard Jungle. It starred Glenn Ford, and the movie was about a teacher, a white teacher that goes into, you know, quote-unquote, an urban environment, a ghetto school, and has to take on all these juvenile delinquent kids, and, you know, he's the teacher that goes into the school and, and you know, goes head-to-head with these rough-and-tumble kids and, and, and you know, gets them to grow up. So, you know, how many times have we seen that movie uh, over and over again? Um, but uh, it, it was the movie um, is was most popular because Rock Around the Clock was over the opening credits. And it perfectly hit the zeitgeist of that time of, you know, kids uh, being you know, t- talking about juvenile delinquents, of course, James Dean is starting to happen around this time, Marlon Brando, the Wild Bunch wearing leather jackets, and, you know, the whole kind of, you know, tough kids and kids establishing themselves. And it, the movie took off because kids would go to this movie so they could listen to Bill Haley. And I'm not sure where I heard this fact, but I'm pretty sure uh, I could go and hunt it down. Kids would sit in the theater all day, because back in the day, even when I was a kid, they would just run the movie over and over and over again, just like they do today. But you could sit in the theater all day. Nobody threw you out after the show. And kids would sit in the theater, and they'd get up and dance 
to rock around the clock. And, you know, the whole idea of of juvenile uh, rebellion was part of this idea of the teenager. It wasn't all so clean and tidy. Kids were expressing themselves. Of course, this is the generation that just a few years later would become the counterculture, um, you know, the baby boomers. And um, so they were starting to, to, you know, separate themselves from their parents. Of course, the America at this point had been this very uh, kind of repressive, um, you know, uh, culture post-World War II, where everything was squeaky clean, everybody lived in the suburbs, leave it to Beaver, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Brock was not in line with that at all. Kids were rebelling and expressing themselves uh, in their own way, and that came out in the popular culture. So Blackboard Jungle captured that. Rock Around the Clock captured that. There were stories that kids would even tear out the seats or have riots or rip the seats. Um, You know, they would really get crazy to this music. So again, you think... Oh, rock around the clock, how quaint, happy days, you know, you know, oh, malts at the malt shop and, you know, oh, weren't, weren't those nostalgic days so quaint. That's really not necessarily the case. I mean, a lot of kids were rebelling with this music and it was very controversial at the time. So, uh, what happens then rock around the clock becomes a success, you know, and all of a sudden rock, the, 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 the song when the Blackboard Jungle becomes a, a hit movie catapults up the charts again in 1955. It stayed at at number one on the pop charts for eight weeks. And some people say it's the biggest selling single after Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Uh, it's, It's sold to date over 25 million copies. So again, something that, you know, we think about Michael Jackson and, and the Beatles and Elvis as being the biggest names in music. Even today, you know, people say, oh, Katy Perry, she sold more records than the Beatles. Well, Rock Around the Clock, second biggest selling single of all time. Uh, Pretty incredible. So um, also what's interesting is that around this time was when LPs first started showing up and 45s, which was a big reason why rock and roll succeeded. Prior to this time, we had 78 records, um, which is a different speed on the record player. They were a different size disc. Uh, You couldn't fit that much music on them. So what the industry did was, due to advances in technology, again, post-World War II, with vinyl, being able to make your records now out of vinyl, which was much more durable, and you could make a longer record. So you had two formats come out at the same time, a 45, where you could put one song on either side that was cheap, uh, so a teen could buy that, and then you could make a whole entire LP, so an artist could put more songs on and you could sell that for more money. And both formats, when I was a kid, were still very popular. It wasn't until the late 70s that you know vinyl was put out of business by first cassettes and then obviously CDs in the early 80s. Um, and now, of course, vinyl is kind of back to a certain degree, uh, and a lot of people are back to listening to it. But um, all of that plays into the success of Rock Around the Clock, that you have a 45 RPM single now, which you could sell a lot more copies of a particular song because they're cheaper to buy. Jukeboxes also big around this time. You start loading 45s into the jukeboxes. Um, of course, jukeboxes had been around since the 40s, but that industry developed, and that was a big part of record sales because kids would go to the malt shop, the pizza place, the, the drive-in, the restaurant, listen to these, and the records would run out. So selling records to um, uh, 
operators of of these machines was a, a big business at that time. What not just selling to individuals. Um, so um, you know that that's a whole that's a whole another aspect of what what was going on at this time period. Uh, anyway, so now what I'd like to do is. Um, oh, and so to finish this point, though, about LPs, Rock Around the Clock was the first LP release that had rock in the title. It was the first song, the rock song, to be used in a soundtrack. And I'm pretty sure that it was the first song with the title rock in it to go to number one on the pop chart. So it, it, it has the dubious distinction of being first in all of those categories. So now what we're going to do is I want to listen again have you listened to the the final version of Rock Around the Clock now that we've talked about all this stuff and I want you to listen to the lineup and so that you can hear you still have the chugging bass and a lot of people have a misconception that that someone is playing on the rim of the snare drum and what you're really hearing is the driving click of the chugging um slap bass technique. And if you listen to Haley and a lot of other stuff, rockabilly music particularly, they use the upright bass to this effect, and it really drives the music more than the drums are doing. Also, the rhythm guitar, which in this case Bill Haley is playing, uh, you know, is very uh, rhythmic, and same with that kind of chick-a-chick-a-chick thing going on. Um, interestingly, as we said, Billy Gussack didn't really play backbeats the way we would think of uh, even the way rhythm and blues drummers did were starting to do by this point. He played in an older style, so you don't hear backbeats on this song. What he's probably doing, and I've tried to figure it out because it's hard to hear the drums, he's probably playing a shuffle on the snare drum, a hand-to-hand shuffle with either sticks or brushes, probably sticks. And he's playing these kind of Gene Krupa bombs that he's dropping on beat four, just like the older school way of playing drums. The, the cymbal that he crashes on, which he doesn't use very much. Again, this is a, a swing drumming kind of a technique. Uh, it's not a big cymbal, and he doesn't crash it on beat one. He crashes it on beat four. It's a very small cymbal. Uh, and again, this harkens back to the way that a swing drummer of that era would still be playing, which is based in the past rather than the future, which is how we play rock drums today. Other couple of elements that I want to have you listen to is uh, there's this jazz guitar solo which we haven't really mentioned yet. We, we mentioned that it was it was used in uh, Rock the Joint, but you know this solo has kind of become iconic. But it's really like a very technically difficult jazz solo, uh, and that was the idea in Rock Around the Clock was they wanted the soloists to play more of a jazz thing. You still, if you listen carefully, you can still hear the um, the, the the steel guitar. It's it's now its role is much diminished, but the steel guitar player was with Haley all the way into the late fifties. And uh, you know, a lot of times he's enhancing what the electric guitar is doing. And you can hear these little uh, fall offs, and that's the the pedal steel still there. And 
And the last element that we haven't really talked about is the honking R&B saxophone, which Haley had added along the way. Originally with Saddleman, there was no horn player in the band, but as I mentioned, honking sax was a big part of R&B, and that would end up becoming a big part of the Haley sound as well. And at the end of the song, you'll hear the bam, 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 bam. So there you have it. And what I would recommend that you do is is go and take a listen to Rock Around the Clock. Just put everything else down. Put on some headphones. Crank up the volume. It's a powerful song. The groove is intense. It is driving. And as I said, even though all these elements don't shouldn't theoretically work together, they managed to do so beautifully. And what Haley managed to come up with was a kind of a, a, a summation of so many different styles of music that had been going on at one point. Up to that point, I should say. And the fact that, that you know, he cut them in this beautiful studio, the Pythian Temple in New York City, um, the, the sound of the record is spectacular. And you totally get why it became so popular, why it was so influential, why it sold so many copies, why it stayed on the charts for eight weeks, and why people loved to dance to it, and, and, and were, um, why it was such a, an important song. I want to just finish by talking about sort of the legacy of Bill Haley and Rock Around the Clock, because, again, today, we don't celebrate Bill Haley, say, the way we do the Beatles. You don't hear Bill Haley very much on um, even oldies radio, maybe maybe on oldies radio. Uh, Rock Around the Clock is all around us, like so much old music. You hear it if you're, say, on hold for the dentist office, or you're in the supermarket, or, you know, you're walking around in a big outdoor mall, uh, or you're at a theme park. You know, the song is still present. And I would say, I would dare say, and maybe write me an email if, if, if you think I'm wrong, that most kids today are familiar with that song. They've heard it in some way or another. But at the same time, we don't consider Haley to be a great legend. And that's partly because in the big picture, if you look at a picture of Bill Haley, he wasn't an attractive guy. Most of the guys in the band, by the time rock and roll uh, hit, rock around the clock hit, they were already in their 30s. They were considered to be old men by the standards of that time. And very quickly, by 1955, just the following year, uh, and certainly by 1956, which was the year that Elvis really exploded, now you've got Elvis. You know, Elvis was a very handsome guy. He was young. He himself was 19 years old. He was the same age as his audience. He was intense. He was daring. He, you know, with the hip shaking, he drove girls crazy. He terrorized parents. He was overtly sexual. You know, he represented much more what today we would think of as a rock star. If you think of, you know, any young rock performer today, they capture those elements. Haley looked like a, you know, your uncle uh, in, a, in a plaid tuxedo. Elvis was in leather, you know. Um, and so, you know, you also had Chuck Berry, you also had Buddy Holly, you also had um, Jerry Lee Lewis, all of whom were young, aggressive, um, and much hipper than Bill Haley. So that was one reason why Haley's, you know, quickly was kind of put out to pasture by 1956. And that's not to say that he wasn't still in the game. He had a lot of hits through the, you know, through the end of the 1950s. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try to post this uh, video of Haley on, on the, the show notes 
showing him in 1957. And even in 1957, you could still see um, that he had a piano player who would also play accordion. So there's actually a guy playing accordion, which we do not associate with rock and roll at all. And you could see the uh, the steel player, again, standing up playing the steel guitar, um, in addition to the other elements that we've talked about. Uh, but you can get an idea of what Haley's vibe was all about. And once, unfortunately for Haley, once Rock, rock Around the Clock became a huge hit, he never wavered from that formula. He'd found his shtick. Probably he really couldn't deviate beyond that. He wasn't very flexible. Elvis, of course, made a lot of different kinds of music through the course of his career and was able to take his career for three decades. But many of those early rock artists were kind of one-trick ponies, and and Haley certainly, you would say, was was in that category. Um, But he went on, and in the 1960s, he played in Europe, a lot. Um, it's important to point out that in Europe, you know, they they were crushed at the end of World War II, and uh, they didn't have teenagers the way we did here. The, the kids that were born there during the war and and after grew up in intense poverty uh, and didn't really have much. And I really want to do a whole show about British rock because that's such a great story. But um, they were influenced by the American rockers that came there. Uh, first, and actually made appearances. And, and they were able to see some people like Elvis on TV, but Buddy Holly toured there, uh, and Bill Haley toured there, uh, Gene Vincent um, and uh, Eddie Cochran toured there. And therefore, those artists were particularly beloved by European audiences because they actually went to Europe and kids there could see them live, not just on television. Uh, and so Haley was had a very loyal European following. Also, again, Haley was pretty intense. The the early rockers in Europe, Germany, um, and in the UK, uh, there were riots. The teens there were also expressing themselves. And there's some great footage. If you go to YouTube and look up Bill Haley, Germany riots, uh, you can see these uh, riot police were brought out and the stadiums, the seats were all torn up, you know, and this is, here's Grandpa Bill Haley performing on stage. It's kind of hard to put those two together. He wasn't inciting the crowds to riot. He was just doing his thing, um, which by, again, by our standards seems tame, but it had a huge impact and uh, was a, uh, a point by which uh, it gelled um, youth rebellion. Uh, so very, very interesting there. He also had a career in the 60s in Mexico uh, and did uh, Spanish language versions of all of his hits. Uh, so go figure, you know, we all do what we got to do uh, to keep the career going. Um, and so luckily for Haley, I mean, he had a kind of a sad life. He was a heavy drinker. He, you know, his career, he was out of the spotlight. He was out of the mainstream. He was considered a has-been. Um, and he didn't manage money well. He lost a lot of his bandmates early on because he didn't pay them well. And that's another story as well. Uh, if you read the Dick Richards interview, he talks more about that. But in 1974, which is 20 years after his initial hit, uh, the things things cycle around. And I think... In a sort of a, um, a blowback against all of the heavy psychedelic rock and everything, there was a, a brief period where um, 1950s rock had a resurgence and became really popular again. And I don't know, some of the, you who are my age remember the, the band Shanana, who were the 50s nostalgia throwback band. They all put their hairs in, in DA haircuts and grease and leather jackets and uh, sang 50s hits. They were huge um, in the early 70s. They actually performed at Woodstock. Uh, they had 
at a television show. I remember when I was a kid watching Sha Na Na, the variety show. So, um, and of course, Happy Days aired in 1974, uh, following the success of the movie American Graffiti, which was also a nostalgic look at the 50s. A George Lucas movie, very popular film. And Rock Around the Clock became the theme for Happy Days. So it the song actually was back on the charts again, the pop charts in 1974, as a, you know, uh, made another appearance on the charts. So Haley died in 81. Um, you know, it's a sad story. He, he really didn't take great advantage of the fame and money that he had. He kind of blew all his dough. But um, his legacy certainly lives on. And one thing I would say, too... The band, the Comets, uh, were a phenomenal rock band for the day. They rocked hard, and they took their lessons from the Rhythm and Blues Acts as far as laying out the energy. Again, you know, it's not like um, rock bands today, you know, like the Who, you know, breaking instruments and sliding all over the stage or whatever, uh, that, that, you know, contemporary rock bands climbing the rafters and setting things on fire. But those bands that do that stuff today took their inspiration from these bands that were dancing on stage, that were swinging their instruments around, uh, lying down on stage, kicking the bass up with your legs. You know, these were these were pretty radical things for the day, and that's what a rock and roll show was all about. And the Comets, um, Dick Richards, when I first interviewed him and met him, was at the opening of the International Rockabilly Hall of Fame, uh, which is in Jackson, Tennessee, which is the birthplace of Carl Perkins, who wrote Blue Suede Shoes, which is considered to be sort of the first major rockabilly song, first major rockabilly hit, also 1954. By that point, the Comets had actually reformed, even though Bill Haley died in 1981, a lot of the surviving members of the band um, were still active, and they put the band back together. And I saw them play, this is in the year, I think the year 2000, uh, at the opening, they had a big concerts at the opening for this Rockabilly Hall of Fame. And I got to see Dick Richards and many of the original Comets play. They were phenomenal. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm not just saying that because I'm a fan of this music. Uh, They were an excellent band and they really rocked the place hard. And Marshall Lytle, the bass player, was still chunking away on that kind of a thing. And it really drove the music beautifully and got everybody really rocking and and moving. So, you know, you have to appreciate it within its context. Uh, But that is the story of Rock Around the Clock. And hopefully uh, it it has opened some new thought processes for you. And uh, I I encourage you again, as I always do, to go back to this music, listen to it with a fresh ear, learn more about it, and, and understand how powerful it really was in its impact and influence on us today. So thanks much. Keep listening, and uh, we'll see you the next time around. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Daniel Glass Podcast. If you like what you heard today, you can follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. And since we're just getting this sucker up and running please make sure to go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Whether you liked it or hated it, whether it's one stars or five stars, every review, every rating will help. 